0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. Our scripture reading is going to be found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you'd like to follow along. unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and have found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience for my name's sake, hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless I say somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of thy place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hate hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God.
1: And a happy Sabbath again to you all. So. It is so interesting, you know, you're never aware of how the Holy Spirit coordinates the topic of the, you know, of the Sabbath worship. Because you would think, oh, well, you'll come up with a sermon, um, whatever the Lord leads. At the same time, the Holy Spirit is also leading the children's story. You know, the first love. And that was the, the topic of the, of the beautiful presentation. How many of you would love to be in love? How many of you are in love? How many of you were in love, and somehow things have gotten a little bit mundane, and you say, oh, well, you know why I was once in love, but no more. Come on, be brave, be brave, it's easy, yeah, okay. We're going to talk, we're going to talk, we're going to cover pretty much that whole spectrum. Usually when we talk about the book of Revelation, and I'm pretty sure almost every one of you in this house of worship is somehow associated or affected by some of the seminars, Revelation seminars, Daniel seminars. Believe me, um, based on, on my experience with, you know, so many churches in the conference, I know that we take the cake when it comes to the knowledge of the prophecy. But, see that but thing comes in? Um, I'm noticing also the... The decline, very sad. But we're here. We're here to get pumped up this morning. I'm also noticing um, a decline in fervor in some of our people, in some of our churches. Um, do we lack any knowledge of, of the prophecies? No. Can we prove everybody in their face that Sabbath is a day of worship? Absolutely. Can we prove, everybody, that nothing happens after death until the Lord returns? No issue with that. But when I have the privilege of talking to many of our folk in our different churches, how assured are you of your salvation? You know what is the most common answer I get? I hope so. And I don't know if there are anybody, if, if there is anybody sitting on these pews, and if statistics are correct, there will be half the people in this auditorium that somehow, somehow would waver in our salvation. In our conviction of the truth. In our conviction of our faith. Yes, we get all, I would say, elevated when we come to the worship, but when Monday comes along, when everyday normal life comes along our path, it starts declining. It starts declining. And midweek, midweek, most of us, most of us, and I can get statistics, 85% of us, we forget what the topic of the sermon was the previous hour. And so in my churches, when I, when I pastor my churches, I have the habit of always, always taking a step back and ask the auditorium, and ask our congregation, what was the topic of last week? There is a nugget. There is always a nugget in the message. Uh, you know, every, every pastor, every speaker has a, has a different style of their own, emphasizes in a different way on a different um, avenues on a subject, but there's always a nugget. Like the house of Israel in the ancient world, when they went to the, to the worship service, when they took their sacrifices to the worship service, the Levites will give them a piece of the sacrificed meat, of the boiled or cooked meat, so they can take it home with them. And that was to remind them that they were in the house of God. To remind them during the week that they were in the house of God. And so there's always a nugget in in the messages that you hear from the pulpits, that you can take with you, put it in your pocket, close to your heart, and say, that message, that little word was for me. And so the message for today, most of us, when we approach the book of Revelation, um, how many of you um, would say that most people, when it comes to the book of Revelation, they have this fearful feeling about this book? I'll wait till all the hands go up. Because that is. That is the truth, right? And seldom we associate this book, this letter, with everyday Christian life. We always portray it as something that is going to happen in the future, in the future, and the 666, and the number of the beast, and the mark of the beast, and all that stuff. We forget... In my humble opinion, we forget the main message of this book. And the main message of the book is not the Antichrist. It's not 666. It's not persecution. It's not going to be all the horrific things, but it's going to be what? Not only Jesus, but the love of Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? So if you have your books, the message was read, the verses were read, A bit of a background. We're going back to about 90 AD. Some people say it was earlier. That's fine. But John the Apostle was the last apostle to die. He has been exiled to the island of Patmos. But before he was exiled, some historians do believe that the Roman Empire did commit, did attempt to kill John in a boiling oil pan in the city of Ephesus. They try to kill him. He survived. And by the time he survives, you can tell he is disfigured. His skin is gone. I don't know how many of you have burned yourself with burning oil or boiling oil um, that's worse worse than fire. So some historians do claim, do believe that, that Apostle John was pretty disfigured by the time he was exiled to the island of Patmos. When you were in Patmos, you lived like animals. There were no food. There were no shelters. There were no securities. There were no provisions, nothing. You lived like, as you survived. So if you if you visit some of these sites in Patmos, you will realize that they will they would live like cavemen. They would just survive anything off the ground just to stay alive. He has been boiled, he has been cut off from the church, he has been cut off from his heart, which is the church, and he has been exiled to Patmos. And what happens in Patmos? Well The Lord appears to him to first and foremost remind him he is in charge. And that's why he sees the golden golden candlesticks, seven of them. The star is in the palm of his hand, the Lord's hand. And the Lord does not wait for him to find out what this is all about. He says the candlesticks are what? The churches. And what's in my palm the angel of those churches, meaning, I have the church in the palm of my hand. What Christ was reminding Apostle John, no matter what has happened to you, John, no matter how disfigured you can be, no matter how cut off you can be from your church, you are in the palm of my hand. And so the first message we get from, from this is that the Lord is in charge. No matter if the church is in the peak, if it's in the valleys, no matter if it's moving forward or if it's not moving forward, we are in his palms. And so what the Lord is reminding John after this, many times, ever since I was Yehi, I remember that every time we would talk about the seven churches, we would get this critical judgmental view of Christ's treatment of the churches. As it was read this morning, I know your works. I know your hardships. I know your faithfulness. And all that. But I have this thing against you. Boom. Move it, or I'll move the candlestick. If that's the expression that we get from the Lord, if that's the impression that we get from the Lord... I'm sorry, but we're missing the point, the main focus of the book of Revelation. Take your books with me. Let's read that first portion of, the, of this letter. I'm reading from Revelation 2, verse 1 and 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, meaning to the pastor of of the church of Ephesus, write this. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. I have you in my hand. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I am with my church, the Lord says. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Verse 3. And you have preserved, persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Stop there. Is this good or bad? Is he being critical of the church? No. The second point we get out of this. You know, Apostle Paul says, everything in the life of Christ is applicable to the life of us, believers. Okay? How hasty, how quick we are when we want to criticize each other. When we want to find faults with each other, we forget the positives of each other. We overlook some of those attributes that that individual can hold on dearly. And yet, when we want to find some kind of a fault, some kind of weakness, and we want to point it out, we are patientless to bring it out, we're so hasty, we're so quick in banging each other over the head. All in the name of truth. But pastor, he lives in sin. He cannot do that. You know, he's got a wife, but, you know, I have to bring it to the church. I have to bring it to the board. Yes, you do have to bring it to the board. But before you do any of that, before we highlight each other's weaknesses, the Lord is showing us an example. Highlight the good points. Highlight the strengths. Bring to their attention the good points. When the Lord is approaching this church, the church in Ephesus, Ephesus was located, probably was the capital of Asia Minor. Massive metropolitan area. Huge number of foreigners that would live in Ephesus. The church was wealthy. The church was well off. But instead of just jumping and the Lord say, there is something wrong with you. First, he brings to their attention, I want to tell you what I like about you. I know your patience. I know your hard work. I know that you are so rooted in the truth that you can spot the phonies in no time. I know. I know that for my name's sake, you are suffering. I know it. When the Lord uses the word, I know, from our understanding of the Greek, when he says, I know, that means I appreciate. I like these things about you. I appreciate it. How often do we overlook? How often are we so insensitive that we would look at each other and we see each other's faults and mistakes right away without appreciating that individual. So the Lord is showing us an example. You bring out the positives of that individual, the positives of that believer first and foremost, before we open up our mouths to bring out even the most critical Sin that could happen in that individual's life. Before we do any of that, we bring out the positives of that individual. You know, in our in our ministries, in our contact, and in our interaction with the world of Islam, one thing has, has as a Christian, as a Seventh-day Adventist, and having the interaction with, with Shiites and Sunni radical Muslims, I've realized one thing. We Christians, and especially in this era, in this day that we live in, for the most part, we want people to follow us. We want people to believe in our message. We want people to fully, fully submit to the message of the Adventist church. But we forget one thing. We don't love people. Ellen White says, the the technique, the approach to evangelism will work if we model after Christ. Before anything, Jesus mingled with the people. Before anything, he lived with the people. Before anything, he took care of their needs. He won their trust, then at the end said, follow me. And yet, somehow, we think we can bypass those, those first four critical stages, and we want people to follow us. You know, we'll put up seminars, come see here, see the message, see the Sabbath truth, they will believe, they will even go get persecuted at their, at their jobs, lose their jobs, change their jobs, just to keep the Sabbath day holy, and yet two years down the road, they leave the church. Wait a minute. You know, you are so radical about your conversion, about keeping the Sabbath day holy, about this whole thing, and then two years later, they're not on the pews. Statistics show. Statistics are showing us. Painful, but these are the realities. Only 10% of baptized members will survive the first three years Unless, unless, they see personal, real, authentic interaction, loving interaction by the current members of the church. Or else, only 10% will stay in the churches. The other 90% are gone within the first three years. Do we like to see that? Do we go through this whole investments, time, and money, and energy, and people, and places, just to have 10% stay in our churches? And yet when you look at some of the churches in our conferences, the churches who have the most concern for the people, they don't even have to advertise anymore. They don't even have to go on TV anymore. They don't have to have perks and gimmicks. And, and they grow with leaps and bounds. Only if the people care for each other. And especially for the newcomers. And so, in our interaction with Islam, I have realized one thing. There is absolutely no way, no way, to win the heart of Muslims. And let me give you some statistics about Muslims before I finish that sentence. How many of you are into statistics? How many of you are into statistics? I'll tell you what. tell you what. Statistics do not lie. Firm, authentic, reliable statistics don't lie. And here's a statistic for you. In order for a generation to survive to the next generation, in order for David, with his last name, to survive to the next generation, he needs to bring into the world 2.16 children in order for your generation to survive to the next generation, okay? 2.16 is the minimum that you need. UNICEF, UNESCO, and United Nations, and World Vision have, have printed, have published this statistic. In England, the reproduction rate is 1.8. In Italy, 1.6. In Germany, 1.5. In Denmark, 0.9. Now, let me ask you a question. Will these nations be able to survive to the next generation? No. Anything below 2 is irreversible. So forget it. You either have 2.16 or else it's gone. We'll come to the States. In the United States, with the influx... Of immigration from all different directions Latin Americans South Americans Europe Asia Middle East Canada the whole thing United States has a reproduction rate of 2.11 does it meet the minimum no do you know what is the reproduction rate for Islam globally 8.2 in 1970 There were 100,000 Muslims in America. Today is 9.6. By the year 2020, in 10 years, it will be 32 million. Okay. Now, the question comes, do we just hear statistics and go about our own way? Or do we do something about it? Of all the denominations... Of all the Christians in And that's because... Not because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Believe me, I I change hats when it comes to reaching out to Muslims. But here's what we have found. Of all the Christian denominations, and there are 2,200 registered ones in America, the only one, the only denomination can come close to Islam, the closest to Islam, is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Their view of diet... Haram and halal, what is clean, what is not clean. Their view of judgment, their view of sin. Yeah, we have our differences. But let me give you, share with you an example. One time I had the pleasure of, of interviewing, talking to some individuals from different churches. And here was my question. My question was, when will the kingdom of God be established? So I asked a Pentecostal pastor friend of mine. He said, the kingdom of God will be established when Jerusalem is at peace. Christ is reigning from Jerusalem for the thousand years. That's the kingdom of God established. Okay. I asked an evangelical. Pretty much said the same thing. When Jerusalem is at peace, Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem. I asked the Jehovah's Witness, Elder, when will the kingdom be established? He said, when Jerusalem is at peace, and when the 144,000 are reigning with Christ in Jerusalem. I asked a Mormon elder, when the kingdom of God will be established? He said, when Jerusalem is at peace. What's with Jerusalem being at peace? I don't know. Jerusalem is at peace, and Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem and Jackson, Missouri. Because that's the faith of the Mormon church. He will have two capitals, So if you miss Jerusalem, you can catch up with him in Jackson, Missouri. I asked a Muslim cleric, what is your view of God's kingdom? Just hear me out. He said, when God is done away with sin, when he has created the new heaven and earth, and when the saved are living forever. Tell me who is the closest to my to my belief? Not even a Christian, but a Muslim. Okay? How would you win the heart of Muslims that you will have to reckon with? Whether we like it or not, in 10 years you will have to reckon with Islam in this country. What do we do about it? Do they want to hear religion from us? They have a religion that appeals to ten times more people in the world than we do. So, do not approach religion. Do's and don'ts, don't approach it. Commandments, don't approach it. Do you know what they want to hear? Do you know what they want to hear? Esau al-Masih, Jesus the Christ. Because the Qur'an is the only book outside of the scripture that refers to Christ, refers to Jesus as the Christ. If my Bible reads correctly, 1 John says, if they do believe that Jesus is the Christ, they are of God and not of the Antichrist. Do you see what I'm saying? Does the Jewish nation to this day accept Jesus as the Messiah? No way. In fact, fact, if you are caught today, as an evangelist, if you are caught evangelizing openly in Israel, in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem, you have a five-year sentence. If you're caught evangelizing openly. And yet, $10 million cash is funneled into Israel every day, every day from America. Billions of dollars. One day, I remember, during the Hezbollah Wars, three years ago, when southern Lebanon was being bombarded by Hezbollah, I don't know if some of you remember, the ambassador the Israeli ambassador was in Washington and he was was holding an interview with CNN. And in CNN, Daniel Ayalon was was the ambassador. One of the reporters during that interview asked, Mr. Ayalon, you're well aware of the fervor and the staunch support of evangelical America of the nation of Israel. Of all the financial, cultural, and religious support that Israel is so enjoying from 50 million strong evangelicals in America. What is your view, the question was, what is your view of evangelical America's understanding of the Messiah as Jesus being the Messiah? Having said all that, having said all those good things about it, right? Do you know what the response was? Did anybody hear that? No. I'll do it with his accent. They said, Mr. Bury, Nation of Israel does not care about your view of the Messiah. We ap- appreciate the financial support. You might as well spit on my face, right? And here we are, we think, the enemy is there. There's not the enemy here. Everybody is my friend. Those are the enemies. Let's go bomb them. Let's go make a parking lot out of Iraq. Let's go... Bomb Iran, because they're having financial, you know, funnel to them so they can have nuclear energy and all that. And yet, it affects the very Church of God, yes, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We start getting so bound to the truth, and we forget that the Lord, if he was standing in front of us today, he would say, you have the truth. You know all the truth. You bear witness to my name. And yet, I'm finding something wrong with you. You're playing the game like everybody else is. We want to be the church accepted by all denominations. We want to be a recognized church by the rest of Christian America. Do you really want to do that? Do we want to be a church, or do we want to be a movement of what it originally was? We were never planned to be a church, but a movement a movement to finish the work of God. Not to sit on the sidelines, have nice churches, fill the pews, and let somebody else run the game. No. Uh No. Jesus said, the kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and given to those who don't even know me by now. 2005. December 2005. I don't know if I've shared this story, but it happens, it reoccurs again and again that we are overwhelmed with hearing all these. Angel Gabriel appears to a Muslim Wahhabi jeweler in Saudi Arabia. Because of that visitation, were 2005, five years ago, because of that visitation, there are over 15,000 underground Seventh-day Adventists in Saudi Arabia. Worshipping... I'm not going to say how. But do you know what the message was? Commandments of God, testimony of Jesus. Angel Gabriel appears to this Wahhabi businessman with the message: promises of God, commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. Do you know what keeps the fire burning in the East and it's being snuffed out in the West? We have become religious. We have become so bound to our doctrines. Dare you not disprove me. You know, yesterday, um, the church that I'm pastoring in, in Glendale is comprised of, you name it, all kinds of Christians. And the Lord has brought in all these people into our church. One of the, one couple that took me out to dinner a couple of nights ago, in, in, during the dinner, they mentioned, he said, do you know, What is the impression of the Adventist church that we have gotten all these years as being Pentecostals? Do you know what's the impression that we have gotten? Is that the Seventh-day Adventist church is 24 hours a day, busy proving itself. Why do you want to prove yourself? 22 million people live in Southern California. 22 million people live in Southern California. On an excellent Sabbath day that all the members show up to our churches. We have no more than 80,000 members. 22 million people in Southern California, 80,000 members. What is wrong, do you think? You have lost your first love. Come on, say it. You have lost your... Now, when Jesus is bringing to, to light the goodness of the church... Here's a word that he uses that I think we miss when we translate it in English. Take your Bibles. I want to read this word for you. Verse 4. What does your Bible read, the first word of chapter 2? What is it? Tell me. Yours says yet. Anybody else? Nevertheless. Against. What else? Huh? That's okay. Yet. Yet. Does anybody read but? Anybody read nevertheless? Does anybody read however? All those. Okay? The word in Greek, kata, means this. Alongside. In other words, Jesus is so sensitive, so delicately telling the church, I love what you do. Next to it, also add. He doesn't bang them over the, f- the head. He doesn't come in their face and say, doesn't matter how much truth you have. I don't care for your truth. I have this again. No, no. In that context, Jesus is so delicate, very, very delicately coming in and say, saying, to that goodness of yours, I want you to add something else. You see how sensitive he is? Are we as that sensitive? You pay your tithes. You claim you're a Christian. You claim you're SDA. And yet, I saw you on Sabbath that you were going to a restaurant. You know? As if I've committed the mortal sin, right? Do you know what the problem is? Jesus said, along with that goodness and persevering and your labor and your hard work and your truth-loving and being able to spot out all the evil... Right along with it, I want you to add something. What? Add what? He says, you have left your first love. You can be in the truth. You can live in the truth. But that doesn't necessarily mean you will grow in the truth. You can know all the secrets of the Bible. Though I may have all the knowledge of the prophecies, that I can tell everything that is going to happen in the prophets, even to the minute that Christ returns. Yet, if I have no, no, it's worthless. So Christ, in a very loving way, is coming along sideways, next to the church of Ephesus, and is reminding, you need something. There's a lot of you know, word-by-word translations of this passage. But the most beautiful one is this. You have forgotten me. Can I be a Seventh-day Adventist? Can I be in the truth, commandment-keeping truth, and yet forget Jesus? Can it? The answer is yes. The Lord is saying it. You have lost your first love. Not only, he says, you have lost your first love, you have fallen from being in love with me. By the way, when he says your first love, who, he, who do you think he's talking about? Who do you think he's talking about? Himself. What is the greatest love that I can deprive myself of? The love of? love of God, right? When the Lord says you have Lost your first love. That means there is no fervor. There is no passion. There is no gusto. There is no fire. There is no meaning to your Christian experience. Can I be in love with Christ? Hear me out. Can I be in love with Christ and lose fervor? And lose my fire? Come on, help me out. Can you? Never! You can never be in love with Christ and lose fire. And lose that passion. And lose that fervor. And lose that conviction. Never! Jesus said, If I be in you, ask anything in my name, and it shall be done to you. Do we have that kind of conviction? Or do we believe it was for that first generation? You know, being in love with Christ is what's missing in most of our lives. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Thank God He doesn't stop there. We find faults with each other and we stop short of telling Him what to do. If we love one another... If we love the church of God, the church of God is going to finish the work. But as long as we don't love one another... See, the love of Christ is a two-way street. You cannot love Christ and not love each other. Impossible. Some people would do, you know. We will sing the songs, we'll well up and tear up and all that, right? And at the end, I was in the seminar. I was not attending, I was not participating in the seminar. I was a guest in a city in Central California. I won't tell you where. And they were just wrapping up a Revelation seminar with all the graphics, with all the, you know, pamphlets and everything, right? And so me and my family, we were there for a wedding. So we looked the phone book to see if we can get a closest Adventist church, and we did. And we attended the service. We walked in. We sat in the middle pews, and they were so so excited about you know the seminars and you know, all the end time events and all that stuff. And it finished. The church finished, and the you know the deacons were standing row by row, you know, ushering people out. So they came to our row. Me and my family, we got up, and we were walking out. Not one of the deacons ever wondered or bothered to say. Who in the world are you? Are you guys visiting? Are you guys uh, are lost? Would not even would not even raise a hand to shake. I raised my hand and shook their hand. So we walk out. I'm not criticizing. I'm just telling you our state. You know, we walked out to the pews. We passed by the pastor. Did not one second bother to say who we were. Five of us. Hello, happy Sabbath. Hello, happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. I don't want that happy Sabbath. Nobody wants that happy Sabbath. What kind of a Sabbath is that to be happy about? You know? One pastor friend of mine, he says, you know, sometimes we act like we have had our bowl of cereal and lemon juice on Sabbath days. Why? Why? You know why? We have lost our first love. Now, you can criticize me in this church. You can say, hey, you know what? You have no right to say me that. But deep in your heart, don't raise hands. Deep in your heart, you know I'm telling the truth. Love of Christ is what is missing in our churches. But Jesus doesn't stop short there. He gives us a solution. Amen? Okay, let's continue. Here's here's a beautiful passage. Beautiful. I mean, Valentine's passage right here. Verse 5 remember therefore from where you have fallen repent turn around and do the first works what i wait till i feel good to praise the lord no you praise the lord and the feeling will come we wait to you know somehow revive and rejuvenate our christian walk with the lord with everything artificial unless one thing jesus said Do the things you did when you first came to me. Now I'll go back to my first question. How many of you are in love here? I don't care who you're in love with. Who is in love here? Okay, let me ask you a question. Let me be a little, you know, romantic here. Do you remember the first I love you you said to that loved one? remember how you felt you know everything from here and back and you know everything is just out of out of sync you know and you brought yourself to that point and say I love you do you know what it felt like when she said I love you too whether in a text or in a message or an email she said I love how did you feel how did you feel? You wanted to jump out of your skin. Right? You go out with her for him. I mean, you see my point. You go out, and you want to do everything to show you love her. You open the door for her. You know, you get in the car, you know, and, you know, the, the hair, and, you know, you know, you know, you do the pants thing, and I hope there's no Dan fear here. And, uh, you know, everything you do because you love her, right? But as time grows, as time goes, and you're married, you have children, life takes its toll, right? I asked a pastor friend of mine, I said, how do you keep your marriage bubbly? He says, you know what? He says, every now and then, I open the door for my wife on my car and I wait till every part is in before I shut the door. (laughs) So, so, Jesus says, if you want to find your first love, do the things you did when you first found me. Or, I found you. Do you remember the day, some of you might, some of you might not, I remember the hour and the second that I became born again. April 18, 1998, 4.31, Saturday morning. Jesus says, remember what it felt like. Remember what happened to you. Remember you were impatient to tell people that something has happened to you. Remember you were so careful in doing everything right. I'm not going to add a zero to my taxes here. I'll say it the way it is. When my employer says... What time did you come to work? I'm not going to say 8 o'clock. I'm going to say 8.25. You were so careful. You were so picky. You were so excited. You came to every church service. You went to every Bible study. You sang all the songs. You said, I'll even sweep the floor of the church. Do those very things again. You want to find your first love? Do the things that you did, Jesus says. See, we're all... We, but you got to accept it. Yeah, we're talking spiritual, right? But let's face it, we're all emotional people. Are you emotional or am I the only <laughs> rocker here? We're emotional, right? Our faith life is closely related to our emotions, whether we like it or not, whether we want to accept it or not. We have intellectualized everything. We have philosophized in everything. We have analyzed everything. We have forgotten that I have to feel the joy when I go to God's presence. I have to feel it. What are we afraid of? Do we clap hands in this church? Do we raise our hands during a prayer? Or if the song is good, do we say a shout amen? Do we say hallelujah? Yes! All of the above. When you go to Muslim converts meetings, the the Muslim converts that come to our church. Now, I'm also pastoring in the Iranian church in the valley. Our members, our Adventist members, one time, one, one of our members came and said, Gerald, I so want to raise my hands during singing. Can we do it? I see them. I see these Muslim converts. I mean, they're enwrapped with how great thou art. You sing it. And they're like, almost like this, right? He said, I want that joy. I am too intellectual. We are too mind-filled of our faith. We forget that the Lord says, I want your love, first of all, because I've given you my love. Everything else comes along with it. But first, would you marry someone because your mind says, calculation after calculation after calculation, oh yeah, she she has to be my wife. Would you do that? Would you do the paperwork? Would you do your analysis? Would you do your computer readout to marry someone? What is it needed to marry someone? Talk to me, come on. What? Not love, in love. Right? That's what it's all about. Jesus says, I want you to be in love with me again. How can I do that, Lord? Lord, do the things you did for me first. Open the door for me let everything go in before you shut the door. If you were so zealous in reading the Bible, go back reading your Bible. If you spent hours in prayer, go back to reading. Go back to praying hours. If you showed up in church, 10.40. Now it's 11.40, make it 10.40 again. If Sabbath school is a drag, and yet you loved Sabbath school, then go back to Sabbath school. You hear what I'm saying? If you love the Sabbath, and if you didn't want to do anything wrong on the Sabbath, then go back to that again. Do you see? Everything takes its perspective. Everything falls in place when you major on majors. Okay? Am I talking to someone in this house? Do you want to fall in love again with the Lord? The Lord says, He doesn't leave it there. He says, look, I also know that you're not into Nicolaitans a lot of interpretations about these but the main one is you don't follow the world's way love is not the world's way love the world's way is you love me and I love you you don't love me don't ever expect any love from me Uh -uh. when Jesus says you have lost your first love what is the word he uses in in Greek agapesis what is agape It's the embodiment of a perfect love. Putting up with each other, forgiving each other, expecting expecting to see the faults of each other, rather than being shocked. You're a Christian. How dare you? Right? You know, that agape love is what needs to be put back on here. Go backwards. See, making progress in spiritual life sometimes... You got to take a step back. Go back to the basics. You know the church in Ephesus also dealt with another thing. I'll say this, and I'll close. The city, by the third century, Ephesus was abandoned. Everybody left Ephesus. It left was left in ruins. You know what happened? The gulfs and the channels of the Mediterranean Sea kept bringing out silt tons of silt to the shores of Ephesus. Ephesus was a harbor. And so what happened, this city, because of the buildup of the silt, started moving backwards because the harbor was getting further, 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 further. Now it's about four miles from the sea. If your life has been silted, if things have clogged up again, you know the truth. You're in church. You keep the Sabbath day. And yet, your life has been so clogged up that you keep feeling you're going further, 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 further. The Lord says this, though Ephesus was ultimately abandoned, but I will never abandon you. I will never let you go. That verse in Hebrews was what I was born again on. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he wants the same from me. Don't give up on me, the Lord says. Okay? If you fall in love with the Lord, go back to see what it was like. Relive and bring it to your everyday life again of what it was to fall in love first with the Lord. Everything else will find its proper place. Lord bless you and keep you.